welcome to the long-awaited episode 307 of From Paper to People. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Carolyn Nee Lachlan, and it's Independence Day weekend in the United States. A big thank you and welcome to three new Patreon supporters. Donovan Howard and Leslie Griffin Roberts are the new Blossoms at $20 per month each. And David Demiano is a new Root supporter at $5 a month. I am so grateful to all three of you. Thank you very much for joining in. Today we're having the discussion or at least we're starting it. I'm talking about two Americas, black and white, and how white American genealogists can use genealogy and family history as tools for self-education about our shared toxic heritage. We can reveal documents and stories in our own families and share them for the benefit of all researchers. And I'll start with an example from my own family. If you check out the graphic for this episode, you'll see a pair of my ancestors, George Penn and Sarah Lee. George Penn is identified by the Daughters of the American Revolution as ancestor number A088508. I identify him as my sixth great-grandfather, Sarah Lee as my sixth great-grandmother, George Penn as a patriot, and George and Sarah together as enslavers. Today, the irony of my ancestor's fight for freedom for humans except those he chose to enslave is especially piquant. According to a book published in 1930 with the extremely cumbersome title, Our Kin, the genealogies of some of the early families who made history in the founding and development of Bedford County, Virginia, pages 184 through 186 George named 20 enslaved persons in his will. He filed it 5 February 1790 and bequeathed named human beings, along with furniture and feather beds, to his children, and I quote, and their heirs forever, close quote. Frankie Penn Burton, who was my fifth great-grandmother, received Peter and Jude. Molly Penn Harrison received Simon and Virgin. Nancy Penn Savage received Candace and Davy. Lucy Penn received Moses and Rachel. Sally Penn received Charlotte and Betty. William Penn received Henry and Rose. George Penn received Diner and Sam. Wilson Penn received Ben and Lucy. Thomas Penn received Samson and Delph. Moses Penn received Adam and Hannah. Oh, and some of the children also got a horse or a saddle. George didn't die until 1796, and as Will took this into account, he provided that all enslaved persons in his possession, but not specifically named in that 1790 instrument, should be divided evenly among his children, quote, and their heirs forever, unquote. I guess enslaving humans was a growth industry for my patriot George. Let's ponder the complexity of that for a moment. He fought in a revolution for the right to elect his government, the right to own and bequeath property, the presumption of innocence at trial, and the ability to move between his properties in Virginia and Kentucky freely. He apparently didn't smell the acrid stench of hypocrisy as he enslaved 20 human beings that he fully intended to see enslaved forever, to whom none of these rights could be granted. He certainly didn't have the prescience to see that up to this very moment in which I'm speaking, black voter suppression would be rampant, 
that a school-to-prison pipeline combined with racial profiling, a militarized police force, and a disparate system of prosecution and sentencing would kneecap black America's right to a presumption of innocence, nor that black American property ownership and wealth would be at one-tenth of the levels that white American families enjoyed in 2016. The Brookings Institute, in an article published on February 27, 2020, stated it this way, A close examination of wealth in the U.S. finds evidence of staggering racial disparities. At $171,000, the net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family, $17,150 in 2016. Gaps in wealth between black and white households reveal the effects of accumulated inequality and discrimination, as well as differences in power and opportunity that can be traced back to this nation's inception. The black-white wealth gap reflects a society that has not and does not afford equality of opportunity to all its citizens. Efforts by black Americans to build wealth can be traced back throughout American history, but these efforts have been impeded in a host of ways, beginning with 240 years of chattel slavery and followed by congressional mismanagement of the Freedmen's Savings Bank, which left 61,144 depositors with losses of nearly $3 million in 1874. The violent massacre decimating Tulsa's Greenwood District in 1921, a population of 10,000 that thrived as the epicenter of African-American business and culture, commonly referred to as Black Wall Street, and discriminatory policies throughout the 20th century, including the Jim Crow era's Black Coats, strictly limiting opportunity in many Southern states, the GI Bill, the New Deal's Fair Labor Standards Act's exemption of domestic agricultural and service occupations, and redlining. Wealth was taken from these communities before it had the opportunity to grow. And I've put the link for that article in the show notes. George and Sarah may not have seen any of that coming when George provided civilian service to the colonies with supplies and as a juror, nor when he served as a captain in Colonel Charles Scott's Virginia militia. But then again, they assumed that enslavement would be forever. Their actions, however, were at the root of what we still know as racial strife or trouble between whites and blacks. They were responsible, and we can't leave that as if it didn't matter. Just a little food for thought. But hey, let freedom ring. Happy Fourth of July. Bearing that in mind, this episode is a crossover. On June 10th, I posted a YouTube video about shifting the paradigm and self-examination for white American genealogists. In it, I challenged viewers to place their families' historical and current blessings, advantages, and comforts in terms of slavery and subsequent historical oppression of black America. I asked viewers to examine their privilege in the context of history that has always allowed white-skinned immigrants to merge themselves into the melting pot or to gain cultural whiteness, while understanding that in America, black skin is a permanent branding of sorts, excluding descendants of the enslaved and free people of color from full assimilation. You can't disappear into a society that you don't match, especially if that society is hostile to your immersion. This is the first of more videos to come that promise to be in the same vein, but for now, please listen in to what I had to say on June 10th.
Hey everybody, how you doing? You haven't seen me in a while. I haven't seen you in a while. What's up with that? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I've been working a lot um, with private clients because that is financially the most rewarding thing that I can do. And I got to eat, you know, I got to live. So I've been doing that. But I've also been working a lot with reparational clients and with reparational trees that belong to or are for people who were lynched and people with whom I am not in contact, people who lived and died in the 18th, excuse me, the 19th and 20th centuries. So that's been where my energy has been for months now. Uh, COVID has definitely made it a little hard, you know, to sort of focus. But now we are doing as a nation and as a world, what it is that I'm all about, what it is that I find important and fascinating and crucial to to good good genealogical work, to good historical research and things like that. I have started a really long thread, <laughs> really long thread on Twitter. My Twitter is at Ancestors Alive, and I encourage you to go there and to look for the tweets that feature a split screen. It's a, it's a one picture, but it's a split screen that shows the name of the husband and the name of the wife in a family who is a direct line ancestor family to me and who enslaved people. And in those posts, I talk about how many people they enslaved, how many people they enslaved versus the number of family members that they had. Um, I talk about the names of people when there was a will present so that names were there, the ages of the white children who were recipients of enslaved people as goods in a will, including a feather bed, that kind of stuff. It's really alarming stuff to read. I've known for a long time that my family was descended on both sides from enslaving families. I learned that for the first time in 2011. That was the first time that I came across documentary evidence that I was descended of an enslaver. But that's nothing in comparison with sitting down and looking at these couples, one after the next, after the next, after the next, and seeing that for some of them, it seems like having enslaved persons do labor was what they did until they had enough kids to do the labor on their farm. But for others, enslaved persons were goods that were willed for, well, in perpetuity, for all time immemorial. And sometimes it's said uh, a, a slave girl charity and all of her issue forever. It's a really, really sobering thing to read. And it's not like I didn't know that it was there logically. But when I'm examining each one of these things, what I'm finding is that it makes me ask more and more questions. It makes me ask, why? What were they thinking? How did they benefit? What was their area like? How were they able to write at the beginning of a will things like, I hope that my life has pleased Almighty God. And then in the next sentence, will an enslaved woman and all of her issue forever to a four-year-old child? Like, how were they able to do that? 
it just blows my mind. If each of us as genealogists, as family historians, are going to be accurate about what it is that our family members did, then if we have any enslaving ancestors, we have to examine all of that information and we have to put it out there in social media. Now, initially this year, I was talking about a project I called Hashtag Blog 2020. And my idea was, and it was a very big and bold idea for me, considering I'm not much of a blog post writer, I was going to write a blog post a month. And that blog post was going to cover one couple. It is now June, I have written one of those posts. And that's it. So obviously, blogging is not the way for me to do that. Now, some people blog as easily as they eat their cereal in the morning. And that is great. But there are a lot of other ways to get the information out there. What I've been doing is creating these split screen images using a photo editor called Pixlr. First, I take the screenshot of the ancestry profile of the person, and then I just put the two together of mom and dad in one, you know, I don't know what they call it, but it looks like a split screen to me, um, image in Pixlr, and then I save it. And then I put it out there on Instagram. I put it out there on Twitter. And from Instagram, it shares to my Facebook page for the business for for Ancestors and Alive Genealogy. All of that information is out there. The most complete discussion, however, is on Twitter, because other people sometimes chime in and we get to have a little chat about this, that and the other. It's really, really important that we do this. Now, what about my ancestors didn't enslave people? Okay, that's a really popular claim. And I understand that there are people whose families weren't here during the period of enslavement. But if you think as a white genealogist and as a white person in the United States, I'm not going to get into other countries, just the United States. If you think that that lets you off somehow from being liable to examining the motivations and the benefits that your family received from being white in America, you're wrong. I've been kind of polite about this so far. I haven't really picked on people a lot. I haven't really challenged folks a lot, and I've tried to keep it peaceful. I'm really sick and tired of being peaceful. I've been talking about this for three years, and people are still saying to me, but my family only enslaved one person. Uh, How is that better than anything? Even the, the response, but my family was here, but they were too poor to own enslaved people. Really? Poverty? You think that poverty erases your skin color and the benefits that it gives you? Uh Uh-uh. That's not how that one works. So I want you to understand, this is something that's very important to me, and it's been important to me for a while now, and I've been teaching it via the podcast for three years, and I'm going to keep teaching it. Even if I take hiatuses from the podcast, I'll be coming back. You may not hear from me for a couple months, but you will hear from me again. And that is because this work is important to me. And sometimes I have to take those periods off to just do the research and to just help clients because helping the clients is more important than anything else. Now, if you want to support what it is that I'm doing, I welcome you. Go to patreon.com slash ancestors alive for as little as a dollar a month. You can support what it is that I'm doing. Right now, I'm getting about $150 a month from Patreon that pays for three hours worth of research per month on any 
reparational tree, whether it's a tree for someone who is lynched, a tree who's, uh, for someone who's alive right now and needs assistance right now, it doesn't matter. Anybody who is African-American, who is descended of enslaved persons, descended of free people of color, those are people I'm helping. And that's where that money goes, is to help offset my time and my costs. Because I've got, you know, newspapers.com to pay for, and I've got been verified to pay for, and I've got all the various different platforms that I use that are paying platforms. I've got those things to pay for. That's what that pays for. Now, I haven't been that transparent with everybody because honestly, I don't like those kinds of details. I mean, the same way that I don't really like to blog, I'm kind of lazy and I admit it about letting folks know what exactly is it that I'm doing with all of these trees. So I'm fixing that. Right now I'm working on a document that's going to be a page on my website. And when it goes up, I will let everybody know. I will be posting on Patreon. I will be posting on all of my social media to let you know that it's there. And what that is going to be is a page that shows division. It's going to be living reparational clients. It's going to be reparational clients as a result of lynchings. It's going to be a section, there's going to be a section on reparational clients of black folks who are famous in the black community that white people know absolutely nothing about. And I'm going to tell you exactly where I am in each of those trees, what I've gotten done, what information I'm waiting for, and what I haven't done yet, or what I'm in the process of doing. That way, you can see very clearly what it is that you're paying for when you support the work that I do. And right now, it really is only me who's doing the work. That's unfortunate. Most folks tell me they want to be involved in reparational genealogical research. But then when I say, hey, help me out with a tree, they maybe are able to help for a couple of hours, but really, they want to be working on their own trees. Okay, I can't fault you for that. Nobody else has to have the kind of drive that I have or the specific focus that I have. We're all different people and we need to do the things that we need to do. But I want to encourage you, if you have ever been interested in working for reparations in genealogy, now's the time to start. Before was the time to start too, but I'm not going to get on you about that. Now is the time to start. And when you look at your own family, I urge you, look at your family, not in terms of my family didn't do this, my family didn't do that, they weren't here, they didn't benefit, blah, blah, blah. Rather, look at your family member and say, what was going on in that place and time? And how did my ancestor benefit from white privilege? How has my ancestry benefited from enslavement? How has my ancestry benefited from anti-black skin prejudice? What are the jobs or the housing situations that my family received because of the not virtue, but simple fact of a white skin, you know? That's what I want you to think about, because the ultimate truth is this. After slavery was abolished, African Americans could not disappear into the populace. It's that simple. When my indentured servant ancestors came over, they were on a three-year indenture, and then they were freed from that, and then they could become freedmen, and they could join the church, and they could vote, and they could hold property. The reason was 
They didn't have anything branded on them that said, I used to be an indentured servant. I was less than a person. The law considered me nothing. None of that. None of that has ever been branded on a single one of my ancestors, and therefore not on me. But if you have black skin, that is a permanent brand that you are descended of enslaved persons, free persons of color. I know that I'm not talking about people who just came over from the African continent within a generation. But what I am saying is that that prejudice against people who are descended of free people of color and enslaved people spills over onto anybody who has dark skin. And that's because they have dark skin. That's what I mean by white skin privilege. Reparational work is working to address the inequities of what families like mine, all of them, all of them, going back to seventh, eighth great-grandparents, maybe even further. I haven't even gotten all the way through my dad's side yet. Those people all built this set of colonies, which became a country on enslavement. And they perpetuated a lot of hate and a lot of lies. And they created and split up a lot of families because they could, because they were in power and because it suited them to do so. So reparational work is about helping the people whose families were split up to try to find those distant cousins and make an understanding real about who their ancestors were and what they accomplished, what they achieved, where they were, when they were, how it all fits together. I'm urging you to do that. I'm going to include the link to the beginning of my tweet. It's not a tweet storm, but it feels like it. Um, this days-long Twitter discussion of all of my enslaving ancestors. And I urge you to find a way to do something like it. Do it on Instagram, share it to Facebook. Do it on Facebook. Do it on Twitter. Do it on a Facebook fan page if that's what you have for your, for your business, for ge your genealogy business. It's time to quit pussyfooting around terminology. It's time to quit pretending that possessing a white skin doesn't mean more in this country than possessing a black skin. And I'm not going to be polite about it anymore. Join me in that, okay? Thanks. Wow, working without a mic sounds so echoey. It's like, I don't know, rock radio from the 50s or something. Kind of crazy. Anyway, that was my challenge to you, and it remains my challenge to you. Three words, research, re-examine, and reconsider. For future videos, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can find that at the bottom of every episode, and you can find it on my website. The Twitter thread I mentioned is pinned at the top of my Twitter account, twitter.com slash ancestors alive. Please read it and all of the responses in the thread. All links mentioned are in the show notes on my website. If you want to volunteer for the Reparational Genealogy Project, or if you just want a great online place to hang out with genealogists and family historians, join my new Discord server. It has lots of great channels. You'll find a link to it and to the Facebook group on my website too. Thanks so much for listening. Keep researching, 
re-examining and reconsidering, and above all, expect surprises. <laughs>